three big stories for you tonight. Boris Johnson's pathetic and seriously pathetic response to the cost of living crisis. It does not even cover the edges. It's it's pathetic. There's, there are a few other words for it. And we'll also be talking about the Tory MP watching porn in Parliament. Now, when I first heard this headline, I thought maybe this isn't that big a deal. It is. The details of the story are pretty remarkable. Um, and we'll also be talking about the Rupert Murdoch Piers Morgan crossover, which is trying to take over our TVs. I'm joined all evening by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I'm doing well, Michael. I'm back from a lovely weekend in Paris and I am ready to roast Piers Morgan for all he's worth. The cost of living crisis is deepening and the Tories appear to have finally clocked that it could hit them hard. In response and ahead of next week's local elections, Boris Johnson has asked ministers for their ideas of ways to address the crisis. So what did they come up with to save millions from poverty? Well, first, MOTs for car owners may now only be compulsory every two years instead of annually. It would save drivers a whopping £55 per year, though the AA suggests it could lead to more accidents. And the government will also consider loosening the staff-to-child ratio in childcare settings. That's an attempt to make Britain's extortionate childcare system cheaper. But Labour say it will just drive down standards without increasing availability. There are reasonable arguments for and against both policy changes. England does have a higher staff-to-child ratio than most of our European neighbours, many of whom only require MOTs every two years, not, not every one year. But what should be uncontroversial is that these policies are wholly inadequate. Have we, as we've spoken about before, this year Britons are expected to see the biggest annual drop in living standards since records began. And an extra £55 here or there is not going to change that. And apparently the reason for the patheticness of the policies that Boris Johnson demanded is that Boris Johnson demanded none of them should cost the Treasury a penny. At PMQ's earlier today, Keir Starmer wasn't impressed. It's as if he's only just waking up to the cost of living crisis. And his big idea, fewer MOTs. It, it actually makes the Cones hotline sound visionary and inspirational. North Sea oil producers are making so much unexpected profit, they call themselves a cash machine. That cash could be used to keep energy bills down. Instead, he chooses, he chooses to protect their profits. Let household bills rocket and slap taxes on working people who are earning a living. Does he think that that choice has made things better or worse for working people? What we're doing is making things better for working people uh, than his plans would do by a mile, Mr Speaker. Uh, We're we're raising more, we're putting more to support people with their energy costs uh, than he would with his new tax on on business. Uh, £9.1 billion uh, that we're putting in, an immediate £150 cut in people's council tax. Uh, Their thing only raises £6.6 billion. And what it does, what it does is it clobbers the very businesses that we need to invest in energy to to bring the prices down for people across this country. Clean, green energy, the wind farms, the hydrogen that this country needs. And what this government is also doing, Mr Speaker, is reversing the tragic, historic mistake of the Labour Party in refusing to invest in nuclear. We're going to have a a nuclear reactor every year and not a nuclear reactor every decade, which is what we've got under Labour. That was a bit of a digression on nuclear power. And in terms of renewable energy, what Boris Johnson didn't mention 
is that onshore wind, which is the cheapest source of energy in Britain, has essentially been banned since 2014. That was because David Cameron wanted to appease backbenchers who thought they were an eyesore. Boris Johnson also didn't mention that Shell, who made a record £14 billion in profits last year, celebrated not by investing in new technology, but by giving their shareholders a bumper dividend. A windfall tax taking a cut of those payouts is not going to hold back any green transition. So far, so unconvincing. And of course, as we've become used to, the Tory line is that while you normies might feel poorer, it's only them who can be trusted with the economy. And you'll be used to hearing them brag about this. We've got the fastest growing economy in the G7. It's 7.5% this year. That's the prediction. Fastest growing in the G7. That uh, we have the fastest growing economy in the G7, Mr. Speaker. That's why we've now got the fastest growing economy in the G7. Also, if you look at the, the bigger picture, we are the fastest growing economy in the G7. We've got the fastest growing economy in the G7 this year. Boris Johnson repeated that claim today, and it's technically true. But it's also essentially meaningless. That's because while Britain had the fastest growing economy in 2021, that was only because we had the biggest recession in 2020. To look at economic performance over the course of the pandemic, this is the more meaningful chart. It's from the House of Commons Library and uses OECD data to show that over the course of the pandemic, the UK recorded less growth than the US, France and Canada, though our economy did shrink less than Italy, Japan and Germany. Our performance was, in short, mediocre at best, and it could be about to get much worse. According to the latest IMF projections, next year the UK is predicted to have the slowest growth in the G7 and the slowest but one in the G20. Keir Starmer made that point today at PMQs. Mr Speaker, he sounds like the comical alley of the cost of living crisis. <laughs> he pretends the economy is booming, but where there are problems, they're global. But in the real world... Our growth is set to be slower than every G20 country except one, Russia. And our inflation, our inflation is going to be double the rest of the G7. Does he think that denying the facts, staring him in the face, makes things better or worse for working people? Mr Speaker, the, f the facts are, as the IMF has said, that the UK came out of COVID uh, faster than anybody else. That's why we had the fastest growth in the G7 last year. That would not have happened, Mr Speaker, if we'd listened uh, to Captain Hindsight. You will have heard that boilerplate response from Boris Johnson before. And interestingly, Rishi Sunak didn't show up to back his boss up. And the other issue which dominated PMQs and which will play a big role in next week's local elections is tax. Data released from HMRC yesterday showed that the government tax take will be the highest it's been in two decades. Tax receipts were £700 billion last year, or 30% of GDP. That's, of course, not necessarily a bad thing, but it's only good if the government actually spend that money on ordinary people, not bung it to their mates, or save it up for aggressive tax cuts before a future election. That appears to be Rishi Sunak's plan. Dahlia. Could the cost of living crisis, instead of Partygate, be the issue which brings down this government? I would hope so, because piercing that dangerous myth that the economy is in safe hands with the Tories is a long overdue thing that needs to happen. This myth is incredibly dangerous 
It's why we have seen income inequality in this country rise by over 10 percentage points in just 50 years, more so than most other countries in the global north. It's why we have seen real wages fall 5% since 2008 for the typical worker. It's also why, despite having stacks and stacks of empty housing, our homeless population has risen year on year for the past five years. This is all down to the myth that A, neoliberalism, which is, of course, was first invented by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, is an inevitable and developed system, a sign of development, a sign of civilization, and in turn that the Tories are the best at managing that system. And when we think about one way that that myth has been sustained, even though it is patently untrue, given the way that most people have experienced uh, this particular economic system, it is through, as you've pointed out, the cherry picking of statistics with the help of the media in order to portray and essentially gaslight the population into being told that, you know, that everything is going well and that any struggles they might be having is due to their own individual limitations. The Tories in particular, they love to pull out stats, abstracted slogans like our economy has grown by X percent or employment has risen by Y percent. And the media lets them get away with that portrayal because they always fail to challenge the government on the fact that, okay, yes, the proportion of uh, people in work has grown. But you know what's also grown? The proportion of people who are in work poverty. Uh, So people are now working to the bone and also at the same time struggling to feed their family. The media neglects to contextualize these growth statistics that we see uh, Johnson and Sunak, et cetera, leaning on so commonly because they don't challenge the fact that that growth whilst it's created by working people, created by working class people, that wealth that has been generated by that growth has not been given back to those people. Um, What we've seen over the past 40 years is the deliberate, and in a way that is steamrolled by the Tories, is a deliberate wiring of our economy so that all the fruits of our labour, which has increased the growth, the wealth, etc., is taken from us and given to a tiny class of people. So, when you know the income that is gobbled up by the top 1% um, of richest households has tripled in the past four decades, when our health system is crumbling, when social housing is being defunded, what good is it that our economy is growing if we aren't seeing any fruits of that growth in our everyday life? And it should absolutely be a scandal that whilst an increasing number of people in this country are staring down the barrel now of real poverty, not relative poverty, but real poverty, the government can unashamedly come up and say, well, the economy has grown. I'm sorry that you don't seem to have noticed, but here's 55 quid for your troubles. That is an obscene state of affairs that that we are in. And it is the culmination of the ability of the Tories with the license of the media, with the license of academic economists to A, portray the economy as something that is abstracted from people's needs and B, to allow the Tories to peddle and similarly neoliberal forces around the world to peddle this idea that neoliberalism, that our economy is something that is shaped 
outside of our control. And therefore, the best guardians of that um, economy are the people who leave it be, as it were, rather than the people who who actually work to create an economy that works for all of us. So, sure, you know, the Tories are a safe pair of hands for the economy. If you are a mega corporation or you are a millionaire or a billionaire, but if you're anyone else and you want to live according to your needs, you want to live in dignity, you want don't want to spend your entire life working in order to tread water above the poverty line, the Tories are the most dangerous pair of hands um, you can imagine. And that is being borne out in the state of people's living conditions, despite these abstracted nonsensical statistics that are not measures of welfare, that are not measures of equality, but are markers of the economy that deliberately obfuscate how the economy is being experienced by the majority of people. Uh, so long as we continue to indulge in that, we are going to continue to see this dissonance between how the economy is described in these abstract terms and the experience that people are having on the ground. So any sign that people are starting to understand that dissonance, not as a product of their own bad financial decision-making or their bad financial management, but as a result of deliberate choices being made by those in power, that is incredibly important. And given the depth of the cost of living crisis, a simple PR trick of, you know, putting 55 quid extra a year into people's pockets isn't going to cut it. And it shouldn't. I've actually realized that we actually, I made a bit of a mistake in that intro because it's not going to be 55 pounds per year. It's 55 pounds every two years because you, you would be paying 55 pound a year for your MIT. Now you'll be paying 55 pound every two years. So you've saved 55 pounds over two years. Well, we're about to go into the biggest cost of living crisis since records began. This is going to be the biggest fall in living standards since records began. So that's in the, the 1950s. And the response from the government is to say you can have £55, if you've got a car, by the way, obviously, if you don't have a car, it's not going to make a difference, £55 over two years. It is just so pathetic as to be unbelievable. I suppose also picking up on some of the things you said, Dahlia, that saying the way they get away with it is cherry picking statistics. Obviously, the other way they get away with it is by blaming things which are outside to their policy choices. So we saw that in 2008, a banking crisis, which was very obviously to anyone who understood what they were talking about, a result of deregulation in the financial markets. What did that get blamed on? benefit claimants. Then we've got 10 years of austerity, which completely destroyed the economy. We had you know, essentially no growth for 10 years. Now they say, oh, that's the result of coronavirus. That's the result of a war in Russia. No, it's the result of your policy choices. But they have been very effective, as you say, with the help of the media in obfuscating that. Hopefully, you know, that will start to break away a little bit. Obviously, as we've seen this cost of living crisis, a little bit harder than austerity when it comes to the Conservatives to divide and rule because this does seem to be affecting a large majority of people, obviously not the super rich, but everyone else. We've got a couple more data points for you. The Trussell Trust released these figures today, excluding the first year of the pandemic. Last year, the charity gave out more food parcels than ever before. It was only the second time that food parcels given out rose above 2 million, with more than 830,000 given to children. And that figure is expected to rise dramatically again this year. The Trust's chief executive said food banks in our network tell us this is only set to get worse as their communities are pushed deeper into financial hardship. There is still time for the UK government to do the right thing. We are calling on the UK government to bring benefits in line with the true cost of living. As an urgent first step, benefits should be increased by at least 7%, keeping pace with increases in the cost of living. 
In the longer term, we need the government to introduce a commitment in the benefit system to ensure that everyone has enough money in their pockets to be prevented from falling into destitution. By failing to make benefit payments realistic for the times we face, the government now risks turning the cost of living crisis into a national emergency. Now, we talked about the issues mentioned there in our show after the spring statement at length. We've got inflation, an increase in the cost of living, 8%. Benefits are only rising 3%. So that is the the poorest people in society are facing a 5% cut to their incomes. Appalling, inexcusable. Of course, rather than improving benefits as well, the Tories just slashed universal credit. So it's not only that inflation is is making people's sort of packages they get from from universal credit smaller, but also they proactively took away £1,000 a year by taking away that, that £20 uplift, as it was called. We've got one more clip for you. This is on the issue of Labour's proposed windfall tax. This was Ed Balls interviewing Dominic Raab this morning. And the Labour government had a windfall tax in 1997. The Conservative government had a windfall tax on the banks in 1980-81. That's not a party political issue. It's something you do when there's been a big hike in prices and profits and you want to deliver something for, for consumers. Is it really such a bad idea? Well, sorry, Ed, I think your uh, political credentials are coming out. I think it's a crazy idea. It's a and all of the party experts, which did it in 1980 81. As, as all the experts. did on the banks in 1980 Is this a party political broadcast on no, behalf no, of the Labour Party? I think Geoffrey Howe was a Conservative Chancellor, Mr. Raab. I mean, you know, you've got to put the record straight there, but a Conservative <laughs> Chancellor decided Ed, to have Ed, a windfall Ed, tax on decided. the banks. That's, that's not, well, that's Ed, not Ed, a Labour idea, it's a Conservative idea. You can see how far that Overton window has moved in that clip. The Tories now dismiss policies as too left-wing, too radical, even when they were adopted by Margaret Thatcher. But that's how far we've gone. Let's go to our next story of the evening. A Tory frontbencher has been referred to the Whip's office for watching porn in the House of Commons. Now, when I first saw this headline in The Guardian, my reaction was, so what? An MP watching porn in their parliamentary office? It's a bit embarrassing, but it's not the worst thing in the world. But then I read the details of this story. This is from that article. An investigation has been launched by the government chief whip into reports that a conservative frontbencher watched pornography on his phone in the Commons chamber. Female Tory MPs met Chris Heaton-Harris on Monday night to complain about sexism in Parliament, with one alleging that a male colleague was watching pornography next to them in the House of Commons. So this was not a Tory MP watching porn in their office, a la Damien Green. You might remember that story. This was someone sitting in the House of Commons chamber, surrounded by MPs, TV cameras rolling, watching porn on his phone. And according to that story, he was on the front bench. He wasn't even sitting at the back. We had all those people behind him watching porn live on BBC Parliament. Like, what is wrong with these people? It's blown me away. This is the copy the Times had. We'll get some more details here. One of those present, a minister, said that she had seen a male MP watching pornography in the Commons chamber. She said she had seen the same MP viewing pornography on his phone during a committee meeting. Another Tory MP said she had witnessed a male colleague watching pornography on his phone. She said she had attempted to take a photo of him doing so, but had been unable to. So from this, it makes it seem as if we're talking about a serial offender or more than one MP who watches porn on their phone sitting on the Commons benches. Strangely, Northern Ireland Secretary Connor Burns couldn't bring himself to say what the consequences for any pervy MP should be. But should the MP be kicked out of the party if it is found and established that they were watching porn in the chamber? Well, the, the statement from the Whip's office is the Chief Whip himself is looking into this. It is unacceptable and that action will be taken. 
I know no more than that, but that seems to me pretty clear that the Chief Whip himself is investigating. Should it the whip wrong. be withdrawn? Should, should the whip be withdrawn from and, anyone but, 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 found watching porn in the chamber? So I'm not even attempt to defend that. The, 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 I'm the not chief, asking you to defend it, but I'm just whips, asking you what action the, should be taken. The Chief Whip's job is to establish the facts. And if facts are established, then action should be taken decisively. Right. And what, will be. What, yeah, but what action is that? I mean, well, you know, action could range from, uh, you know, being told off, a rap on the wrist, being expelled from the Commons for a certain amount of time. Should they just be kicked out of the party? Well, I trust the Chief Whip to investigate it, establish the facts and take the action. And I don't think that's his job. That's not my job. Discipline is the role of the, of the Chief Whip and the Whip's office. What a... Uh embarrassing, cringeworthy minute of television. Like, you know, that, that was on the BBC at 1pm today. What is going on? And you have to think, you know, why can't that MP just say, yes, if an MP is found to have watched porn in the Commons chamber, they should be suspended. I can't see you getting away with that in any other workplace, let alone one which is streamed live on TV. The whole thing is on BBC Parliament. Like, it might appear on BBC News. Apparently, you're sitting on the front bench, not even at the back. You're watching porn on your phone. You've got MPs behind you who can see what's on your phone. You're watching porn on your phone. Like, for one thing, you probably should be paying attention. You know, you get paid a decent salary. You've been elected by your constituents to sit in Parliament and listen to what's going on. But more significantly than that, you don't watch porn in public. What is going on? Who are these people? The meeting where the revelations about the porn-watching MP were made sounds like it was pretty heated. It was held by around 50 Tory female MPs, known as the 2022 group. Apparently, at least 12 of them revealed stories of harassment and sexism at the hands of male Tory MPs. The Mirror had these details. One MP recounted how a female colleague in a knee-length leather skirt had been told by a male MP, quote, that's a nice outfit. What do you do for your day job? Another claim that a Tory whip had ushered women MPs into the voting lobbies in recent weeks by instructing, quote, come on, girls. This follows a report in the Times which claimed that 56 MPs are being investigated on sexual harassment claims, including three cabinet ministers. For his part, Johnson's press secretary today denied that the Tories have a problem with sexism and misogyny, but that doesn't appear to be an especially widely held view. Times Radio's Lucy Fisher tweeted, A female Tory MP claims that attitudes towards women in the party is worse under Boris Johnson than Theresa May. Quote, no one has to face penalties for unacceptable and even illegal behaviour, the MP says in oblique reference to Partygate. Female Tory MPs claim the Conservative Party operation doubles down on women more than men when trying to curb revolts, address issues by undermining or spinning against them. MP says sexism is worsening. Quote, nothing ever changes. In fact, the cases seem to be getting worse. Of course, we shouldn't view Theresa May's premiership with rose-tinted glasses. She was the Prime Minister who restored the whip to the sex offender Charlie Elphick just to win a key vote on Brexit. But it's also not surprising that under Johnson it would get even worse. After all, this is the man who, on leaving as editor of The Spectator, wrote a column with a bit of advice for his successor. When dealing with Kimberly Quinn, then the publisher of the magazine, the best thing to do, wrote Johnson, was, quote, just pat her on the bottom and send her on her way. Dahlia, these are the people running our country. What do you make of these revelations? I'm not one to clutch pearls about watching porn. I think, I, you know, I didn't think, like you, I didn't think it was that big of a deal when Damien Green watched porn in his office. It's not 
a great use of your time when you're, you know, on the clock, but it wasn't something that I was going to get morally outraged by. But, but this is truly obscene. It's obscene, obviously, from a sexual harassment perspective. Back in the day, male dominated offices would often have things like, you know, page three posters or other like sexualized posters up in the office. There's a reason why that has been specifically defined as a form of sexual harassment and outlawed under equalities legislation, because it makes the workplace a deeply uncomfortable place for women. It compromises the ability of women to feel like they're being taken seriously by their colleagues, etc. So, so from that angle, it's of course deeply un- inappropriate sexual harassment in the workplace. It's not just harassment indeed of any kind, um, whether it's racial harassment, sexual harassment, it doesn't always happen through explicit acts of discrimination or of physical assault or physical harassment. It's also about creating a workplace that is hostile to certain people and sexualizing women, dismissing them, patronizing them, which we've all seen through all of these examples that you've just outlined, that all plays a role in that. And it's, of course, you know, no surprise that a political class that has been reared and marinated in dysfunctional institutions like Eton and Oxbridge, where this kind of stuff gets dismissed as banter or whatever, that they would go on to replicate these kinds of cultures uh, in government. But in this case, it affects us all. You know, this isn't just about individual issues or or issues of male banter or the culture of a tiny group of irrelevant people. You know, these are the people who are making decisions that are impacting the lives of women. They are deciding how many women's shelters uh, are funded. They decide how much access single mothers get to childcare or to social security on how, whether or not trans women are able to access the healthcare that they need. So the fact that they clearly don't see women as people in the way that they are people, people who deserve dignity and deserve, who deserve to have their needs and opinions taken seriously. That is something that is reflected in the policy that they make and reflected in the kind of world that they're creating. And it is something that has deep consequences for all of us. But even, even if you take away the porn angle, if he, if he was just, you know, scrolling through TikTok or Instagram or watching random videos of animals being friends. To be doing that in the commons chamber when you're supposed to be actively focusing on your job, when your job has far-reaching impact on people's lives, and to be so dismissive of your work, to be so emboldened of your own power that you can just be in the clear view of everyone around you, just be doing something else. And something that might I add is a very consuming task it beggars belief. You are paid 72K a year to make decisions that impact our lives. And this is how you are spending your time. Meanwhile, workers in Amazon warehouses who are being paid 13 quid an hour are being punished for taking too many toilet breaks. That juxtaposition alone tells you the different worlds that working class people and the people who make the rules for working class people live in. Yeah, it's incredible. Just outrageous to see. I mean, this MP should probably have been advised to take a few more toilet breaks. That might have kept him out of trouble. (laughs) But what you were saying there, actually, 
I realized I'd never really thought about watching porn in public as a sort of sexual harassment in the workplace issue, but it makes total sense that it is. And is it correct to say it's sort of on a spectrum maybe with like flashing? Because you could think either this is someone who's just like incredibly stupid, right? So he just has not thought how by looking at porn in the House of Commons, someone else might see it, or he just has no consideration as to what might make people around him feel uncomfortable. Or is it like a kink? You know, like when people flash, what they, what they like to do is they, you know, they, they show their genitalia and they're sort of actively making people feel, feel uncomfortable. That's kind of part of it. You know, someone takes their dick out on the train or whatever. It's, it's not just them being thoughtless. It's they are getting a kink out of other people, usually women, feeling uncomfortable. And I kind of, is this, is this similar? Obviously, I don't, this is all completely speculative. We don't even know which MP this is. Mm. But could it be the case that someone sort of like is getting a bit of a kick out of the fact that they're watching, you know, porn in this place of power and they know that people behind them can see it? You know, this woman tried to take a photo of the, you know, this female MP tried to take a photo of it. It doesn't sound like it was particularly subtle. I mean, what do you make of that? Where, where is sort of like watching porn in the workplace? Where does that fall on the spectrum of, of sexual harassment? Either way, what, you know, I can't speculate on this man's kinks on, you know, what turns him on. But either way, he clearly doesn't think of the women that he works with as human beings, as people. He doesn't, he either actively disregards it or he just doesn't even notice that they exist as full human beings around him. What I would say as someone who has been on the other end in public spaces of both forms of harassment, of you know being flashed in public spaces, and also of having someone deliberately watching sexually explicit things in my vicinity, I can tell you that both of those instances, I still have not returned to either of the places where that happened. One was a particular street, and the other was a classroom. I still have not returned to those spaces because I feel so grossed out by what happened. Because what it's doing is it's a man telling you that this space that he is in belongs to him and you are going to be in it on his terms. And also what it does is it makes you feel like, I don't know where you're going with this. You know, it's not just an act. It's, it's almost like there's a threat embedded in it. That, you know, this is the frame of mind that he's in. This is the thing that he's thinking about right now. And this is the thing that he wants you to know that he's looking at. It's like a kind of mind game of embedding threat into public space and making you start to feel very hyper aware of what might or might not happen. And that's why it creates an uncomfortable and dysfunctional place for women to be in. So either he is so ignorant of women and so ignorant of the way that women have to move through this world that he did this and didn't even understand the impact that it would have on other people. I feel like that's unlikely because I feel like you can't get to an adult age and not know that. Or he was deliberately doing that in order to, as I don't know whether he finds it funny or to get off on it or whatever, the intention doesn't matter. The effect is the same. And the effect is that women that he works with, women that are in the same workplace as him, whether it's other women MPs or whether it's other women working in that workspace for all different reasons, whether, you know, you're a cleaner or you're working in the cafeteria or whatever, it is a way of making the workplace somewhere that you dread going. And that is a form of economic inequality and economic assault for women, as well as being a form of harassment. 
Yeah, I'm sorry you had those two experiences. You know, we don't normally use like privileged discourse that much on on this show because I think it can be, you know, fairly divisive on a number of levels. But I do feel like, you know, me saying, you know, I've never really thought about how watching porn in public could be, you know, could have something to do with harassment. Like I imagine, just as you said, Dali, there probably most of the women watching this, I imagine thought, come on, you know, we've had to think of that because it's happened to us. I think that is an obvious example of male privilege. I hadn't even thought about that. Let's go to our next story, our final story. You know how the saying goes, you wait your whole life for a billionaire-backed right-wing TV channel committed to defending oligarchic interests and attacking minorities to emerge, and then two come along at once. Yes, less than 12 months after the launch of GB News, the Murdoch-owned Talk TV has launched in the UK, and it's essentially a vehicle for Piers Morgan. His new show is called Piers Morgan Uncensored, and he launched it by comparing himself to Nelson Mandela. He then went on to say this. I want to issue an urgent trigger warning. For all ultra-sensitive, permanently offended, woke snowflakes who may have accidentally tuned in tonight, you're not going to enjoy this show. In fact, it's going to really annoy you. It may even provoke trauma, because I'm going to be constantly celebrating the one thing you can't abide, free speech. And that's real free speech, not your kind of free speech, where only your opinions are allowed, and anyone with a different opinion has to be shamed, abused, and cancelled, their careers and reputations destroyed. As you can see from that clip, the whole thing's quite embarrassing, but the production values are higher than GB News. Though in, in many ways, it is worth saying the channel is less ambitious. There will only be three hours of proper TV on the channel per day. The rest of the time, it will stream the right-wing Murdoch-owned talk radio. Now, tuning into that for a few hours at a time, I cannot imagine why anyone in their right mind would do that. Piers Morgan Uncensored, for what it's worth, averaged 317,000 viewers during its first episode, beating both Sky and BBC News. That dipped slightly by Tuesday, so then 216,000 people tuned into his show. Hardly anyone watched the other two shows on the channel. The 7pm slot is hosted by Tom Newton Dunn, that of the repeating neo-Nazi conspiracy theories, and the 9pm slot by Sharon Osborne. It was only Morgan's show that beat the failing GB News. So what are people tuning in to Piers Morgan Uncensored for? Well, from the clip we showed you, it's nearly all rants about trigger warnings and cancel culture. But Morgan has also done some hard-hitting interviews. This is him talking to Donald Trump. So I watched the Oprah Winfrey interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And I'm angry watching it. I think and you it, were right to be. I thought the attacks on the royal family were disgraceful. I agree. And unsubstantiated. I'm yep. calling them a bunch of... By the cowards. way, I agree with you. Right. I'm a big fan of the Queen. You so know here's what, So let me ask you what you would have done then. So then it turns out Meghan Markle writes to my boss at ITV and basically demands my head on a plate. Yeah. And the next day I'm told I've either got to apologise for disbelieving her, or I, or I had to lose my job. Now, what would you have done? I would have left, but I wouldn't have attacked a weatherman. You know, <laughs> he wasn't worth it. Well, I didn't attack him. I left the room. Well, you did. No, you attacked him. Uh, he attacked you, and then I would yeah. have handled it differently, but that's okay, you know? But would you have apologized? Have for, would you have I've known you a long time. Yes, that was Piers Morgan asking the former president of the United States about the time Piers Morgan walked out of Good Morning Britain. These are the questions everyone else is too scared to ask. Thank God, finally, we have a show that's uncensored. This is the opening credits of Morgan's show. A giant spinning brain with the words, woke insanity, cancel culture, snowflake society, identity politics, and censorship floating around the spinning brain. 
Dahlia, I don't know if you tuned in for the whole opening night, but from what you've seen, what's your verdict on Britain's newest channel? This is a, a classic case of projection. The, the very things that Piers Morgan is naming as the targets of his show, cancel culture, the stifling of political imagination, censorship, the narrowing, the frame within which we can have political discussion. That is a culture that actually not only is Piers Morgan partly responsible for when we talk about the culture of that that is actually real rather than the one that's imagined um, in the deep recesses of Piers Morgan's fears and fantasies. The actual reason that we have stifled political debate, stifled political imagination, an actual cancel culture where people aren't just, you know, being sent a few mean tweets or aren't just being kind of called out, but are actually, in the case of Julian Assange, having their freedom taken away from them. In the case of activists and everyday people who often find themselves in the crosshairs uh, of the murdered press, that culture as it exists is actually much more the responsibility of people like Piers Morgan and Rupert Murdoch than it is of the people that he is associating it with, i.e. black people, brown people, trans people, queer people, etc. Piers Morgan's entire career is essentially indebted to one super rich guy, Rupert Murdoch, a man who perhaps more than anyone else in this country has been responsible for the concentration of power in the media, for the shrinking of the imagination of the British people as to what can be possible, for destroying the lives of anyone that happens to fall in their crosshairs, whether it's entire communities of people, like, as I said, like migrants or refugees, or whether it's individual activists who have had their lives ruined by the Murdoch press, who stand for a political vision that Murdoch himself doesn't agree with. That culture where three media companies own 90% of the media in this country is the most powerfully corrosive threat to free speech in our society. And so the idea that it's from a Murdoch platform and from the mouth of Piers Morgan, who has made it his business to go after and cancel people with whom he does not agree. Let's not, let's not forget about how he treated Insulate Britain protesters, uh, where he treated them with more contempt and anger and bad faith arguments than he treated powerful people like Donald Trump. The deep irony of that cannot be lost on me and is part of the deflection. You know, people understand and people feel that their political imagination is being restricted. They feel like the realm of what is possible is being deliberately shrunk. And the ability of someone like Piers Morgan and Rupert Murdoch to switch that and cultivate this understanding, this fantasy, that it is because of the existence of trans people, the existence of black people, the existence of migrants, that that is why people feel that restriction on themselves is honestly a work of genius, but it is incredibly dangerous. And what's more, for Piers Morgan, of all people, to be talking about snowflakes, this is the man who kicks off every time Meghan Markle leaves her home. Like, it is the most stunning act of inversion and projection that I have seen in such a long time. But it is also something that we should be, we need to actually think about how we're going to strategize around this. I think for a long time, we have felt, you know, okay, we've lost the mainstream media, but we have digital platforms. We have Twitter, we have YouTube, etc. 
obviously we are seeing that those platforms like YouTube and Twitter don't actually problematize the power model and the ownership model that is exists in a lot of legacy media. But on top of that, we are also seeing huge amounts of resources being funneled into more social media savvy outlets such as this one. You know, we've had a lot of discussions about how should we engage with this particular phenomenon with the, the, first of all, the contestations around power and ownership in digital platforms, but also in the increasing money that is being thrown into more social media savvy formats that are perhaps also sort of combining the legacy media, social media phenomenon. I don't know what the answer to that is, but it is clear that this has to be a very key part of our strategy going forward because that inversion of reality, that inversion of the truth is a direct threat to our ability to organize. But also that doesn't mean that we retreat. It doesn't mean that we start acting like we are snowflakes or having this be our audience and having this be the terms on which we define ourselves, but actually call it out for the inversion and the hypocrisy that it is. So use the weapons that they are sharpening back against them. I agree with you. Like they are much worse at cancel culture than the left. Like, I mean, especially, I think the strongest example of this is how Jeremy Corbyn was tweeted. Like he had some positions on Zionism and some positions on NATO, which sort of like they weren't debated honestly they were made taboo and the fact that he held them made him beyond the pale which is sort of like kind of the definition of cancel culture i mean i do think cancel culture on the left exists my position on it is kind of anyone who spends more than five percent of their time talking about it is probably a reactionary because it's just it's not that important like i think it's real but if that's your obsession then something's gone a little bit wrong i think or you're, you're not an honest player which is you know the case with piers morgan um, I want to go to some commentary on Talk TV. Jim, Jim Waterson did a decent explainer in The Guardian over the weekend, which included this detail from former Sun editor Kelvin McKenzie. Waterson writes, McKenzie, who picked up his phone while pouring concrete down rabbit holes in his garden, predicted that Morgan's show will work 101% as long as he stuck to bashing woke policies and stayed away from political news. He said political discussion was a turn-off for most viewers, suggesting the 7pm show hosted by Newton Dunn faced difficulties. Quote, I don't think he's got a prayer. GB News have shown how difficult it is to attract an audience with politics. It's just an impossible thing. I thought that was an interesting comment from Calvin McKenzie, a very, very objectionable person, but you know, he was an editor of a, of, a, of a mainstream newspaper that was quite successful, I have to say. And my response, I suppose, was, is it really impossible? Is it really impossible to have a successful show which is based on politics. And sort of my response is, you know, on a fraction of Talk TV's budget, we've built up a pretty decent audience by talking about politics. Now, it's, you know, it's, it's not as big as would justify the, the money they've poured into it. But if we can get millions of views per month, it was 3 million last month, surely Talk TV can get 10 times that with, I presume, at least 100 times the budget. Well, why can't they rise to that challenge? And then thinking about it some more, I think I do have the answer, which is, it won't work for them. People watch our show because we tell the truth about the government. When their policies on the cost of living suck, we say that. When they dole out money to their mates, we talk about that. And when they make policy which benefits no one but billionaires, that leads our shows. But Talk TV or GB News, they can't do any of that because they're owned by precisely those billionaires that benefit from our corrupt government. So all they're left to do is whine about cancel culture and what university students may or may not have said online, because that's the only thing they can make them seem oppositional against. If, if you can't oppose 
the government, if you can't oppose the ruling class structurally, what are you left to do? Make it seem as if some tweets from university students are the real issue facing ordinary people today on which, you know, the future of the world rests. He's positioning himself as this warrior for truth, this warrior for ordinary people by arguing with a princess in LA and some tweets because he can't challenge the real issues which are affecting people's lives. He, he can't have a decent critique of, of Rishi Sunak's spring statement or the fact that Boris Johnson has no answers to the cost of living crisis, because that would require him to have a critique and analysis of wealth and power in this country, which when you're employed by Rupert Murdoch, you cannot afford to have. Dahlia, I want your thoughts on, especially that quote from Kelvin McKenzie. Do you, do you think if Piers Morgan sticks to cancel culture, he is 101% sure to be a success or that show is, is sure to be a success? Well, I think that we clearly have a somewhat generational, but not entirely generational shift uh, that is happening. And that is the audience for this TV show where particularly sort of white property owning boomer men, but also not, not just that generation, also, you know, younger versions of that as well are experiencing a very minor loss not of economic power, but of, of social and cultural power. There is a, an increasing space for voices and needs and thoughts of people who don't fit into that category to actually be heard and to be taken seriously. You know, that's the key. It's not just about being heard. It's about being actually that being heard, actually translating into being taken seriously. And again, I have to insist it is incredibly minor. The culture is still, and politics is still dominated by white, wealthy men. But this entire dynamic that we're seeing play out there, this panic, this, this frothing at the mouth um, that we are seeing, this kind of caricature that we are seeing represented by Piers Morgan and the fact that, you know, it, it probably will work for at least for a certain period of time as, as a, as a model is because there is a backlash happening to that minor loss of power. And so we should see this backlash, yes, as something to be anxious about, as something to, to be nervous about and to strategize around. But we should also see it as a mark of our own power. If they weren't threatened uh, by the coalition that is being built by working class people, at least in the cultural domain, of people who are working class people who are less easily divided by gender, race, sexuality, etc. People who understand the struggles and, and ally themselves with the struggles of people that don't necessarily have the same experiences of them. If they weren't threatened by that, then they wouldn't bother. And this makes me think a lot about our last Black Lives Matter uprisings that happened in this country, particularly surrounding the fall of, of the Colston statue. We saw in that moment white kids, kids of all different uh, geographic backgrounds, kids of all sorts of class backgrounds from all parts of the country, not just the big cities, but actually like villages and towns coming out in support of the fall of the Colston statue and for Black Lives Matter. That is a marked shift from where we were, you know, five years ago when the Roads Must Fall campaign first came onto the scene. I think that that shift, particularly amongst white people and the fact that white people are gaining somewhat of an anti-racist consciousness, I think that a lot of the resources being thrown at these particular projects is an attempt to curb 
that. It's an attempt not just to curb the activities and the behaviors of people of color, of people who are marginalized, but actually it's in order to curb the bonds of solidarity that are being formed uh, around these struggles by m- trying to stigmatize that solidarity so much that unless your life literally depends on it in the way that it does for marginalized people, you won't bother getting involved, you won't bother advocating, or you'll feel less inclined to act in solidarity with people who might not have the same experiences of you, who might have less power than you. So I actually think that a lot of this is, you know, not just about curbing particular developments in the anti-racist movement, developments in the migrant justice movement, in the climate justice movement, but specifically breaking the bonds of solidarity that are clearly forming um, between different communities. And we saw that not only in the Black Lives Matter protests, but we also saw it, frankly, in the COP26 protests. One thing that we often don't talk about with the COP26 protests is the fact that, yes, it was this huge demonstration of people power demanding climate justice, but actually that it was also a massive, a really marked shift in the expression of climate justice through a lens of racial justice, of global justice, of queer justice, of migrant justice, of feminist justice. It was a beautiful connecting of all of these struggles that had previously been separated that now by lumping all of those people together as snowflakes, as whatever, it's an attempt to try and stigmatize the participation in that growing movement. So whilst we should be concerned and whilst it is certainly worrying, um, I don't think we should just laugh it off as something funny. I think it is a genuinely worrying move just because GB News has been a failure doesn't mean that they're not going to get up and keep trying and trying again to find a model that works to push this politics even further. We should also see it as a sign that we're doing something right. A story you probably won't hear about on Piers Morgan's show, which is apparently obsessed with free speech, is that the policing bill has very sadly passed today and sort of unamended. So lots of the attempts in the Lords to sort of water it down seem to have failed. We haven't covered that tonight, but we have on many previous shows. So you can go check out our interview with Shami Chakrabarti from the 17th of January on what is so wrong with that policy. We will be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>